Traditionally, we view missions as something we only do in foreign lands. But today's churches have a new challenge. Our neighborhoods are filled with diverse cultures of Americans in desperate need for the gospel of Jesus and life in His church. Most significantly, they need a gospel and a church that are faithful both to the scriptures and the cultural context of America. Pretty cool bumper, huh? Thanks, Cassie, for doing that. Wave your hand so everybody knows the kind of work that you do. All right. Well, welcome to the transit. Good to see everybody. We're starting a new sermon series this, this, uh, this week. It's going to be four weeks, and we're going to talk. Uh, it's called Remission. We are going to look at the church and her mission. Obviously, I'm not going to redefine the mission of the church. Jesus gives us that in the Great Commission, the Great Commandment. We're told to love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, love our neighbor as ourselves. We're told, told in Matthew 28 that we are supposed to make disciples of all nations. Um, I, I can't change that. I don't have the power and the authority to do that. It's, it's written in stone. It's written in letters in the Bible. I'm not going to do that. But today, um, given where we live and the time and era that we live in, um, it can be said that we have to relook our mission so that we are effectively executing it in a way that the culture around us actually um, gets what we're saying and receives the good news that we're bringing to them. So that's what we're going to talk about for the, the next four weeks. Um, I'm going to pray and then we'll get going. Father, we're grateful for our time together today. We thank you for the gathering of your church. Lord, uh, I thank you that you have all around this area, not just with us, but with congregations here in Kingstown and all over uh, the D.C. metro area. You've gathered people who right now are meeting in, in uh, response to the scriptures and they are opening up their uh, opening up their Bibles and they're reading the words of Jesus and being exhorted to to follow him more fervently, that they're singing songs, worshiping Jesus, that people like are standing up and they are talking about the good news of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for those congregations and fellowships that are meeting. We pray that your spirit would descend on them and that you would open ears and, and eyes that they might see and, and hear you to follow you more uh, more closely. Lord, we pray that same thing for ourselves today. God, as we start this sermon series talking about the church and her mission, remission, we pray, God, that you would give us indeed big ears to see, to hear, uh, big eyes that we might see clearly what your scripture is saying and how we are to respond. More importantly, God, that you would give us a heart that is prepared to receive. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Some of you all know my testimony. Uh, I'm not going to give it all to you here this morning, but I will start by saying, you know, I don't consider myself unchurched. I went to church as a as a young kid quite often. Uh, I grew up in the black Baptist church tradition. For those of you all that are unfamiliar with that, that means there's a, a church full of black folk and, you know, wooden floors, no air condition. We had the funeral parlor fans when it got hot and when it was cold, you put your coat on um, uh, as a young kid, I remember sitting in the pews and there was no children's church. You sat with your parents during the service, during worship in the service. Um, and uh, you couldn't go to sleep. You just as a child, you, you were not allowed to go to sleep. You could lean your head against your mom or your dad. But if you like close your eyes a little bit, they would nudge you 
and give you that stern look or it worse comes to, uh, worse things. They take you out and give you a little talking to. You might be allowed to take one of the giving envelopes and, and, and draw or, or draw on it and things like that. Um, so basically, my parents weren't Christians growing up. We went to church out of tradition, as in much of the black community at that time. Um, even so now, uh, especially in the South, a lot of us went to church because it was the thing to do. You went to church because you were taught to go to church as you were growing up. And although there was, you know, there were the gospel was being preached. Um, people were coming to faith. There was life in the churches that I went to somehow through all those years of going to church uh, with my parents. Uh, I, I never came to faith. I don't remember hearing the gospel and responding to it in a in a salvific way. Fast forward a couple years. I was a teenager. I was able to drive and I stopped going to church because I was working at McDonald's, worked at McDonald's all the time because I was an independent guy. I wanted to have my money to do what I wanted to do with my money, what I wanted to do. So uh, my grandmother asked me, my grandmother, I lived in Durham. My grandmother lived in Chapel Hill. She asked me to join the choir. I grew up singing. Everybody on my mother's side of the family sings. So I sang too, had, had sung pretty, pretty much all my life, not necessarily in the church. Grandma asked me to sing. So if your grandma asks you to do something, you're going to do it. So I stopped working on Sundays and I went to my grandmother's church. And I can just remember this black Baptist church in the country of Chapel Hill. My grandmother was a maid. She went to work working for well-to-do white people. Uh, I'm giving you all just a history lesson. They aren't. All right. And uh, she was a, one of my grandmother is one of my heroes, my life hero. She died about uh, eight years ago. But. When she wasn't working and when she wasn't taking care of her family, uh, my favorite times were sitting on my grandmother's front porch, barefoot, just hanging out with her, hearing the stories of her childhood and eating red dirt. That's what we did. My grandmother's life when she wasn't working surrounded her church. The life of that community surrounded this uh, this lively Baptist church that really um, everyone in the community, they were connected to it, whether they believed or not. And that was always interesting to me. And, you know, even though I wasn't a Christian, was very far from it. I saw the life of God in these people and all of their lives surrounded this church. Fast forward to today, my mom and her siblings still go to this church because my grandmother has gone to be with the Lord. But the things that I saw as life in that church don't exist anymore. In fact, um, very few people go to that church at all. The membership is dwindling. They have no, you know, there would no be very few people of your age in this church. They're all older, gray haired people with canes and and stuff. And what used to be the center of life in this community based upon the church no longer Exists. That church is struggling to find its relevance in today's culture, a culture that it used to thrive in. Here's some interesting, interesting statistics. Uh, the Barna Group, which is a Christian research group, reports that 100 million people in the U.S. have no affiliation or contact with the church today. This includes an estimated 13 to 15 million, pe- million, pe- million people who have at some point professed faith in Jesus, but still don't go to church, don't go to a Bible study, don't open their Bible to read it or anything. Now, that statistic by itself means nothing to most of you all. If you look at the how many people live in America, about three, 313 million at this point. What we're saying here is 
about a third of our great country um, doesn't affiliate themselves with church at all. They're, 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 so we're saying this. There are some people here in our country, about, a one, about one third of them, that if you said Jesus or God, they would have nothing to connect it to. And that means nothing to you until I give you this statistic, that just 50 years ago, that statistic would not have been considered the America that we live in now. So 50 years forward, um, we have exacerbated the number of people who are unchurched. Those would be people who have had no significant contact with the church at any point just 15, uh, 50 years ago. Here's some more statistics. The number of adults in the U.S. who do not attend church has nearly doubled since 1991. We would call these de-churched people. A de-churched person is someone who has been a regular or fringe church attender, but at some point decides, hey, I don't want to go to church anymore. I'm not going to go to Bible study. I'm not going to open my Bible. They just stop going and participating in church activities. Over 3,500 U.S. churches close their doors every year. Attendance in more than 80 percent of the existing churches has plateaued or is declining. These are the statistics that we can say of our church, uh, not our church, but the church at large today. You know, it once um, it once was thought that America is a Christian nation. I, I mean, do you believe that? Very much so. Where we live today, America is a pluralistic society. Honestly, it always has been. We are a a nation of immigrants and people have brought in what they believed from various places that they have come from. I think while it would be incorrect to say that mainstream America is secular, we definitely are not the Christian nation that some would espouse it to be or even claim it, claim it to be. In 18th century, Christianity was the dominant worldview in the United States. Today, as in much of the Western world, America really is a melting pot of worldviews. Whereas we could, you know, someone wanting to find God or um, inch their way toward him would have just come to church to find him. Today, that's not the case. People will turn to any number of religious sects. They will, um, they'll go to a therapist, a psychologist, a psychiatrist to get help with their problems. They will go get in their car, go down the street and go to Barnes and Noble. They will get on the Internet, um, Google, Amazon.com, order the the local self-help book that will help them solve their problems. No longer are people automatically going to the church to find God or find um, the, the reason why and help for their problems. What does all this mean? Uh, I think it means a few things. I think, firstly, it means merely opening the doors of the church and expecting people to come in droves to find God or to find help is no longer the America that we live in. Future generations uh, aren't necessarily going to come to faith the same way that some of you may have come to faith, even though you aren't quite that old. It's just not happening that way anymore. Secondly, I think it means that great portions of the United States subcultures will not be reached through Sunday morning services. People sitting in the priest just like you and I, it's not always going to happen this way. It's not happening this way right now. Thirdly, I think it means that the Christian story is no longer at the heart of, of our nation. We want to believe, we just want to believe that the United States is a Christian nation. But if you look around you, even next door to you and what your neighbors are doing, can you actually say that we live in a Christian nation? Although many people in our country identify themselves as Christians in the national sense, there are a whole host of us 
of people in our country um, that don't their Christianity doesn't involve belonging to a worshiping community of people that profess faith in Jesus. And of course, if you aren't confessing Jesus, then you're, um, you're that's not real true Christianity. All right. So put your put your handkerchiefs up. Don't put your white flag. I'm saying, we give up Jesus. What are we going to do? Well, it's me. Life is, you know, every, just America's going to, you know, it's going bad. I'm not trying to give you a pessimistic view of the church. Actually, I'm trying to, you know, say the church needs to get ready for action. Okay, this is this is our call to wake up, um, survey the things that are going on around us and do something about it. That's really what this sermon series is about. We should not have a pessimistic view of these statistics. Um, There are a number of great signs of life in the church today. Many churches are healthy. Missiologists, those who study the church and her mission, are greatly encouraged with the the surge of church planting across the nation, really across the world. We are a church plant that has been birthed because of the response to um, the decline of churches in the D.C. metro area and of a population of people who don't know God. Um, And so, you know, hooray for that. Um, I mean, think about the signs that are going on. God's word is still being preached. Jesus is still on the throne in heaven. The gospel is still the power of salvation for those who believe. Romans 1:16 says the arm of the Lord is not too strong to save. The Holy Spirit is alive and well in his church and in his people. Jesus will build his church. We should not sit on our couches, get our get our handkerchiefs out and have a sob story about what's going on in the world. But we should open our eyes and see what's going on and And understand that the culture that we live in today is not the culture that we lived in just 25, 50 years ago. And we have to rethink our mission, not change it, but rethink the mission that Jesus gave us and contextualize it. You know, oftentimes we view missions as someone that's called by God to be an evangelist. Evangelism is basically telling the message of Jesus so that people understand it and they might that they might receive him. Sometimes we see missions as someone called to to do missions as an evangelist. They get trained up, they're prepared, they're supported. They go off to a foreign land and they immerse themselves, assimilate into a culture and uh, help those people come to faith. Um, Based upon the statistics that I just read you, all of us. Firstly, I would tell you, all of us are are missionaries. Jesus has put us on mission with himself, with the tools and the resources and the Holy Spirit to go and to do the things that he and his disciples did as they walked the earth. But more than that, we need to wake up and look just across, uh, you know, across the way to our neighbor and across the street to those who live around us and see that God has called us um, to the diversity of cultures that are right here in America with the opportunity to do mission right here in our own home. Um, Okay, so in in saying this, I'm not advocating that we get rid of foreign missions. I'm not absolutely saying that. But what I am saying is there's a mission right here um, in Kingstown, Alexandria, for those of us who live here. And that mission is waiting for us to jump on it and and be a part of Jesus' mission. Acts 1-8 says this. Jesus is is before uh, post-resurrection, before Pentecost. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is here is telling us where do we begin 
given the context of the era that we live in and what the statisticians say is the plight of the church. Jesus said this 2000 years ago. He says um, he says, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit to live in you and to empower you both with a message and with courage to go and do that thing which is required to gather the, the nations to me that would make disciples and have them follow me. And then he says, start in Jerusalem. OK, when Jesus said these words, he was in Jerusalem. The 120 uh, disciples were hunkered up in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to come down. And he said, start right here in Jerusalem and then go to Samaria. That was the next region up and then go to I'm sorry, go to Judea. That was in the same region. And then go to Samaria, the next region up and then go to the uttermost parts of the world. Jesus has given us the way to do it right here. Now, before we throw the bath, the, the baby out with the bathwater, though, it's I think it's important that we you know, not just get ahead of ourselves. What Jesus said here in, in Acts that started the early church and really the, the work of uh, James, Paul, Peter, all the apostles and the disciples that uh, the, in the first century did that great thing that grew the church and called people you know, out of darkness into light to follow Jesus um, really is the pattern for that, that we've seen across the centuries. And then we can um, fast forward into the 18th, 19th century and see missionaries like Hudson Taylor and Roland Allen and Leslie Newbegin, men who through their, you know, through their faith and through their efforts, really did pave a path for us um, where they looked at the, the message that we had been given in the gospel. They looked at the, the situation going on in the culture and they contextualized that as the church to bring people to faith. I, I think of Leslie Newbegin um, specifically. He was a British missiologist, a theologian and a missionary to India. And Leslie Newbegin had this uh, had many writings where he talked about that the, the fact that the church cannot let go of these three things, the gospel, the church and the culture, the gospel, the church and the culture, because those are the keys to doing exactly what Jesus called us to do in in his mission. First, the gospel. First Corinthians says the gospel is the power. The, the gospel is of first importance that Jesus life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension um, is the thing that reconciles us to God. All of us who are estranged from him, Jesus, perfect life lived for us because we couldn't live it. And his death in our place for our sin and the resurrection that he was uh, that he amassed because you know, God received his sacrifice is what reconciles us to God. We have the great message that brings life and that changes a person to be more like Jesus. But not only do we have the gospel, we have to take the gospel and fit it neatly into the culture that we live in. And as the statistics tell us, the culture is, is constantly changing. What um, what happened in America 20, you know, just five years ago or is, is quite different even today. And so we have to take the timeless message of the gospel and fit it neatly into the culture where we are so that people people see us living. They hear us speaking in a way that they can understand that same message that Jesus preached over 2000 years ago. And then we have the church. The church is that mechanism by which God would uh, make make his mission Come alive. The church is the, the gathering of the saints of God. But we're not just all saints. The church is both the people of God, but also the people that would gather with us. And so we have the message of the gospel, the, 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 the message of life. We have the culture that, that message has to be contextualized to so that they 
see and, and hear us living for Jesus out loud. And they're drawn to that message because it, it's the only thing that changes. And then we have the church that we gather them into because the church is the mechanism by which God would he would advance his kingdom. And when we, when we take all those three together and we start in Jerusalem and we go to Judea and we go to Samaria, then therein is the mission of God. You know, scripture. Um, let me give you just my rudimentary definition of remission as we're going to talk about for the next four weeks. Remission is this. It is our call as followers of Jesus. And it's the call of the church to commit both how we live and how we speak the gospel so that it does its work in the culture that God has placed us in. What does that mean? It means we have a we have a gospel. We have a culture that the gospel needs to respond to. And we need to make the message, not change the message, but contextualize it, put it in context so that those people living in today who have never heard the word Jesus, who've never stepped through the doors of a church can see it freshly that that Jesus saves, that there's nothing in life that will satisfy them except God living in them by the power of the Holy Spirit to make them to satisfy all of their longings. All right. So how do we do this? My contention is we do this by imitating Jesus. We're going to I'm going to unfold for you in the next four weeks several ways that we do this, that we relook the mission of the church and we use the gospel contextualized in the culture as the church to fulfill that very mission. But I'd like to argue that the way that we start any of this really is by simply imitating Jesus. And it can be said that Jesus was the ultimate missionary. Think about Jesus life. He came from heaven to earth to show that really he came from heaven to earth to show the way. Jesus is not of this world. He's existed in eternity, existed in perfect community with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And by God's plan, he incarnated himself into our life. He put skin on. He walked on our roads. He ate our food, drank our drink. He spoke our language. He was a missionary. He made himself like us when he was very far from us. This really impresses me about Jesus. Um, And it's one of the most astonishing things that we could recognize about our God is that he actually chose to come into this fallen, sick, evil, twisted, unjust, cruel and painful world. And he lived with us. He suffered like us. He suffered for us. Ultimately, he suffered to save us. That's Jesus. How do we imitate Jesus? All right. I'm going to first give you a little short story about how not to. Uh, don't you hate it when pastors tell on themselves? But if I don't give you a, like a firsthand example, you're not going to get this because, you know, we all mess up in life. I retired from the army in 2008. This is a this is a little sliver of my testimony. This is in the good part. Retired from the army in 2008. And I retired because I was going to go on vocational ministry, going on staff at a church in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And uh, I served as a director of operations for, for that church and was learning really how to, how to be a pastor, how to minister, all those things that are, you know, the other side of, of everything you, you experience when you're sitting in the, in the pews of the church. And uh, I was a part of the redemptive restoration ministry at the church. And uh, really what this was was people who were, found themselves caught in habitual sins. You know, all kinds of things, alcoholism, uh, same sex orientation. Um, I, I just got this deep anger that I cannot get myself out of. And 
Uh, through this ministry, I was introduced. Actually, I was asked to do a follow up, a six week follow up with a young military guy. I was former military, so I can identify with most military guys. This guy happened to be um, he was struggling with same sex attraction. OK, difficult circumstance. I remember um, someone brought him up to me as we were praying for people at the front and he was sobbing. I could just f- sense uh, the, the suffering in this young man. I could sense the shame on him. He was in the, ar- in, in the military, wanted to be in the military, but he had this inner turmoil that he did not know what to do with. He went through some, some redemptive, redemptive training, um, just a series of, of praying prayers and just opening up the scriptures to him, t- talking to him about the gospel of his, his identity and you know, all of that. And, uh, and then comes the follow-up. And so the first time that I'm supposed to, the second time after praying with him at the altar, that I'm supposed to meet with him, I was asked to meet with him at a Starbucks. And so immediately, you know, all the, all the, all the inhibitions in Jeff started, like, putting up, like, barriers. And it's like, I just, I can't do this. Um, and it wasn't because of the guy. It was because of the perception in my mind of what, was, what would be thought about me meeting with a guy that had these, these struggles. And I was talking to myself, saying, well, I mean, we're going to meet in public and... You know, I had met the guy, so I knew how he looked. I knew how he presented himself. And I was so caught up in Jeff being seen by people he didn't know at Starbucks so that I could minister to somebody that really needed Jesus in that moment and the Holy Spirit to convict and help and change his heart. And all Jeff could think about was was people that he didn't know what they thought about him and, you know, and all of that. So, you know, we met at Starbucks out in the open. And the whole time, this guy's basically unfolding his story for me. And, you know, again, he's, he's, this guy's hurting. Shame on him. He's, he really wants help. And oh, I, I didn't hear a word he said because I'm worried about well, who's seeing me, who's going to walk in and know I'm here and they immediately see me with this guy. What are they going to think? And, and all this stuff. And I would tell you um, a couple things. Firstly, I didn't know the gospel well enough to, to break, break through my own inhibitions to help this guy. He needed a word from God. He needed the Holy Spirit. He needed Jesus in that moment. I was the Jesus that God had sent for him. And I had I had barriers up that prevented me from breaking through my own junk to minister to this guy. And more than that. um, And this, you know, this is the, the bad part is. I had the opportunity to cross a barrier. I had the opportunity to come out of my life into his life to show him who Jesus was. And although we met, we met for the six week follow up. I would tell you, Jeff's part in his redemption did not happen because I, I just couldn't do it. I didn't imitate. I did not imitate Jesus well. All right. So let's see how we're supposed to do it since Jeff couldn't do it well. John four. If you got your Bible, turn to John four. You guys are going to read along with me. We got this is a long passage. All right. And we're not going to actually go verse by verse unpacking all of this as we would normally do. But we see here in John four just a great story of 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 Jesus crossing the street to someone that needed that needed him and how he handled a situation much better than I did. And so I'm going to read some of this. I'm going to read all of it and you can just follow along with me. Uh, Starting at verse one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. 
Joseph's well was there. Jacob's well was there, excuse me. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was the sixth hour. So in Jesus' day, the Holy Land, Israel, was divided up into three regions. You had Judea in the south. You had Galilee in the north. You had Samaria in in the middle. And the text tells us that Jesus was, um, for whatever reason, he was he's moving his ministry from Judea um, into Galilee. And this is Judea, Galilee, Samaria. And so he had to pass through Samaria. The the scripture says he had to pass through um, Samaria. Why did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? Uh, It it, it seems that the, the spirit is trying to tell us. There is a divine appointment for him there. We can suggest that we can assume that we don't know. But whatever reason he had to pass through Samaria. Why, why does that make a big difference? Because Jews didn't like Samaritans. And Jews actually went they went out of their way to go around the region of Samaria if they had to go to a different different part of the Holy Land. And Jesus um, apparently chose not to do that. Now. Here, here's the deal here. Samaria was that part of, of the Holy Land, the, the area that you didn't want to go to and you didn't want to go through. Um, we could call Holy Land from the perspective of a Jew. The, the, you could call Samaria from the perspective of a Jew as the ghetto. Seriously, that's, that's, it wasn't really the ghetto. But just to give you the context of how a Jew felt going through a, a land like that, it's just it's like... Uh, I got to go through the. You know how you feel when you're going through an area you don't really like. You don't want to go. I mean, you like roll your windows up. You know, you're very careful. You're looking out. This is how a Jew would feel going through going through Samaria. Um, It was filled with mixed race and mixed faith people. The Jews and the Samaritans were actually both a part of Judaism in the in the Old Testament. We can look at Second Corinthians, Second Kings 17 and the like. And that really is where the separation started between um, between the Jews and the Samaritans for many reasons. At some point, the, the Samaritans from Samaria decided they only wanted to adhere to the, the, the five books of Moses. They believed in one God. They believed in the law of Moses. But at some point, because of a number of reasons, too much too much history for us to get into, they decided that the only the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, were pertinent to them. They discounted the rest of the Old Testament and they started worshiping differently. More than that, they they decided not to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. They created their own temple on a place called Mount Gerizim. And this is really where Jesus finds himself, not too far from this place where the Samaritans would have worshipped. Jews considered Samaritans foreigners and they would go out of the way to stay away from them. Um, Jesus' disciples, for some reason, didn't stay with him. They had gone to the next city to buy some food. So they, you know, they didn't have enough with them. Um, Jesus was weary, John tells us. And we have no other reason to believe why he would tell us this other than the fact that although Jesus was divine, John wants us to know that Jesus very much was was feeling fully human as well. Jesus was weary. He needed some water. He was tired. All right, let's keep reading. Verse seven. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, 
and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. We don't know this. We don't know this woman's name. In 42 verses and all that said about her and her encounter with Jesus, John in John's gospel, we're never given her name. We learn of her reputation as an adulterer. A few verses down. We'll read that in a couple seconds. Uh, it was the sixth hour. It was noon. And so it would have been hot. And for those of you that have been in the Middle East, regardless of what time of year it is, at the, the height of day, the sun's going to be out. It's going to be um, you know, burning down on you and it's going to be hot. And the interesting thing here is, is a woman who's choosing to go get water in the in the heat of the day when other women, other reputable women would have done so in the cool of the day. They would have been out getting water either in the morning or in the evening. And so we get from this that she's trying to avoid ridicule and embarrassment. She doesn't want to be around those who would automatically see her, notice the lifestyle that she had been living, judge her um, by, by being near her. You know, she's likely very surprised when Jesus speaks to her. You know, in that cultural setting, um, men didn't, you know, just outwardly come up and speak to women. Jews didn't speak to Samaritans. Jesus would have been recognized as a, as a rabbi, dressed sort of like him, had the persona and definitely a rabbi would not have been speaking to a woman Samaritan in this in this setting. Jesus had no water with him. Typically, a person traveling would have had some kind of container with water. And obviously, Jesus disciples either had it and took it with them or, you know, Jesus had people that sort of helped him out. And for whatever reason, he was at the well, tired, hot, and he had nothing to drink out of. The Jews, seeing Jesus do this, would have really shunned him from what he was doing because he was choosing. He asked her for a drink. So what he was doing was he, a Jew, was asking a Samaritan to give her some of her water. And so that would have been just a distasteful, sinful, forbidden act of what he was doing. Verse 13, Jesus says he, he uses a metaphor that would liken the water that he would give to offering her eternal life, eternal, uh, eternal salvation. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him 
must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus names the woman's sin. This is a turning point in this story. Jesus is is naming her sin. She recognizes that he's not just Jewish. He's not just a rabbi, likely, but he he's a prophet. This guy has just unpacked everything that that I I mean, he knew that the insides of me and, and what I had been doing. We should note the clever way that Jesus decides to expose her sin. He didn't just, you know, look up and say, you're, you're a sinner. He basically said, um, well, it, go go find your husband and then I'll give you the water that I'm suggesting that you have. And what Jesus is is doing in a very few words is he's giving her an opportunity to, to confess. She replies with a half truth. She says, well, I don't have a husband. And then, of course, Jesus basically tells her whole life story of sin. You know, something is different when the woman calls him, sir. You ever you ever, you know, talking to somebody and you find out something different about them. And you change your whole demeanor. Uh, I have a you know, we live about a mile from here, less than a mile. And I have some guys doing some work for me. And I, I don't usually tell them I'm a pastor right off because people just change. They change on you when you tell them you're a pastor. And so this guy, he's having a good conversation with me, having fun. He's throwing in a couple curse words every now and then. But, you know, I know curse words. I've said a couple myself every once in a while. Um, and when I, he said, well, what are you? I mean, you're, you used to be in the military, right? What are you doing up here? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm starting a church. And, he's like, and then he, he just everything about him and our conversation changed. Didn't say another curse word for the whole two hours that he was in my house. And so the same thing is happening. This lady, I mean, she's recognizing he's just not just a Jew. And he's, you know, I, I see he's probably a rabbi, but he's a prophet. And he's just laid out for me all the junk that I've done in my life. Verse 20. Um, she, verse 20 is kind of confusing. Um, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. She's she's asking Jesus a theological question. She's like, all right. So the thing that divides me from you, Jews from Samaritans, is is how we worship, where we worship. And she's like, so so knowing that you're not just a Jew and a rabbi, but a prophet, if I want to go and get my life right, because I feel the conviction of God coming from you and just emanating toward me. It's like a rock being thrown. I'm saying repent. You know, it's like it hits you in your forehead and it's like, all right, I get it. I need to change. So where would I go if I wanted to worship? If I'm, some, if I'm a Samaritan, I'm going to go to Mount Gerizim. If I'm a Jew, I'm going to go to the temple in Jerusalem. But, I mean, I, I, I want to do what's right. Where should I go? And then Jesus gives these great words in verses 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is declaring he he in this early part of John in talking to a woman who is very far from God is basically saying, I'm I'm putting an end right here and now to ritual and tradition as the form of worship. You no longer have to go to the Jewish temple. You don't even you definitely don't have to go to the temple at Mount Gerizim because the father is going to in future days give you the spirit and the spirit will reveal to you the truth of who I am, who of who God is, and he will point you to me. That's what he's saying in all this. For the father is draw is seeking. He's drawing all these people to himself. I mean, what a solemn moment this must have been. Can you see it? 
This woman, she gets it. She is her eyes are starting to open. Her heart is started unfold. I'm sure she had the guilt of her sin is coming to bear and she is wanting to get her life right because she's come into an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus decides to reveal who he is to an adulterer, a woman who was in sin, a woman who was very close to the, you know, as, as close to hell as you could come as a sinner. This woman This is a neat part of the story because this woman, as John unfolds his gospel, is the very first missionary that we know of that goes and tells the story of Jesus and has other people respond to it. Verse 27. This is going to be a long passage. Um, We're going to read through the end of the the rest of the story. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for the eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and have entered into their labor. Then read these, uh, these last few verses with me, starting at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told them all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. We could loosely say this woman has had a a conversion experience, not in the the likes of Pentecost, Acts 2, Holy Spirit coming into her. But she's been changed. She's had an encounter with Jesus. This woman has made a decision to start over. And really, two things are happening here. First, the disciples come back. And I mean, I would love to have been there and seen them coming back and seeing Jesus interacting with a Samaritan, a woman, a non-Jew. And they wanted to say a whole bunch. But, you know, they held their tongues and why in the world is Jesus hanging out with this woman? They could see they could see who she was. That's why she was there at noon. They could see who she was. She did. She was embarrassed by her lifestyle and who she was. But they held their tongue. And so Jesus in the, the future verses, he basically says uh, they ask him, Rabbi, you know, he's been he's perishing. He's tired. They said, Rabbi, you need to eat something. And then he gives them spiritual words. He says, dudes, hey, look, I've got food to eat that you don't even know about. And there's like, what? Did somebody give him a Big Mac? I mean, <laughs> did the woman give him a, a tuna taco or something like that? And he's like, the, the food that I have to eat is is to do the will of my father. And then he says, come on, look, look up. 
The, the fields are white to harvest. You know, you sow seed into the ground. God waters it in four months. It produces a harvest and you're going to get you get to come in and and hack it down and and reap what you did not sow. Look up. You see, I'm see. I see he's probably pointing at that woman. The, the harvest is here and you have an opportunity to reap what you didn't even labor the field you didn't even labor in. At the same time, this woman, this woman, this adulterous, sinful, near hell woman is walking away and her whole persona is changed. Although her clothes might be ragged and she might have the 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 look of a worn out woman. She's changed and she's glowing because she's encountered Jesus. And what does she do? She goes back to her hometown, Sychar, and her words are different than the, the, the apostles, the, the disciples were. She says, I've met a dude who told not a dude. I've met a guy who told me everything I've ever done. And I think so something something is different about me. I mean, can he be the Christ that the Jews preach about? And what happens? They are attract, they, they are attracted to her message. They see. They see change on the outside of her that makes them want to go find out about this Jesus. And what happens? Jesus spends two whole days with the Samaritans, people that a Jew would not have spent two days with. Interesting stuff. So what do we see in Jesus life that we can imitate from John four? I would tell you, namely, I think mostly we see that Jesus crossed barriers Jeff, in his flesh, because of the, his own issues of life, was unable to cross a barrier to, to be Jesus in the flesh to a military guy that was struggling with same-sex attraction. Jesus crossed at least four or five barriers with this, with this Samaritan woman. Um, the first barrier that Jesus crossed was a racial barrier. Jesus crossed a racial barrier between Jews and Samaritans to show the message of salvation was intended for all people, Greeks and, and non-Greeks, uh, circumcised and non-circumcised, women, men, infant, adults, everyone, because Christ is all, Corinthians 3.11 says. The second thing that Jesus did was he crossed the sin barrier. Jesus was willing to get as close to sin as he needed to be so that he could bring the light of the gospel himself to this woman's life and have it rub up against her and change her. Thirdly, Jesus crossed the gender barrier. He showed God's gracious heart for this woman and really for all women, because in this environment, in first century world, women were second class citizens. They didn't have the, the respect of 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 doing anything in society the, the way that Jesus was about to open up for this, this young woman here. Fourthly, Jesus crossed uh, a geographical or a theological barrier. He tore down the, this notion that we have to come to a temple or that we have to conform to tradition and ritual to worship. He says in many days, you know, in many days to come, God's going to pour out his spirit and his spirit would live in us and it would be the truth for us, helping us see who Jesus is and it would incline us toward him. Most importantly, Jesus closed the barrier between this woman and God by hanging on a cross. Jesus died for her sins. He rose from the death. He ascended to heaven to prepare an eternal home for her. 
after Pentecost, he would go to heaven. He would send the Holy Spirit to fill her, empower her to new life and ministry. And he does that same thing for us today. And so remission really is about being like Jesus. And if you don't remember anything that I said today, we need to rethink our mission, but only from the perspective of we need to imitate not ourselves or get too close to sin. We need to imitate Jesus to be like him. And we can only do that through his empowering grace. Three things. First, we need to uh, we can't be so moralistic and so hung up on other people's sin that it forbids us from entering their world to extend Christ's grace to them. If you don't get next to them, how are you going to show them who Jesus is? Secondly, I would tell you at the same time, we don't want to abuse our own freedoms in Christ such that we dance so close to sin that we ruin our witness. And there really is a balance. And we're going to spend a couple, at least one sermon talking about how can we be Jesus to people that are in sin and need him without without crossing uh, uh, an unneedless barrier ourselves. Thirdly, I would tell you, we're only able to extend grace to people who don't fit our own cultural or moral norms when we realize that we, too, need that same grace from Jesus. The, the saying is, but for the grace of God, there go I. Here's some questions for reflection, and then we'll, I'll close with these. Who are the Samaritans that are near you? Are they right next door? Are they across the street? Do they work with you? Where are they? Who are they? Have you noticed them? Where, I mean, where are they in our culture here in, in Alexandria? Secondly, what are the barriers that you need to cross to evangelize them? How can you be Jesus with skin on to the Samaritans that are in your life? Let's pray. Father, we are amazed that you would love us so much that you would send uh, us a gracious gift packaged as a baby. He would grow up in the likeness of, of man. He would eat our food, walk our roads, wear our clothes, speak our language, yet not be like us. That he would assimilate so fully into our culture that we would think he's of us, but he's not of us. He's of this world. He's like you. He is you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his perfect life. We thank you for his sacrificial death on the cross. We thank you that he did that in our place for our sin. He did it for us. Lord, we see in this story a woman who did not deserve Jesus' kindness or his forgiveness or his favor, but he gave it to her because because he's God, because he loved her. And Lord, would you give us courage to let down our windows and roll them on down a little bit that we might see and smell the aroma of the culture around us. And even though there might be a stench to it, that you would equip us with your word, that you might fill us with your spirit and that you might give us the the unction of the Holy Spirit to go to be a Jew in Samaria, to be a lover of God in the midst of the sin of this world and to shine your light that all might see it. And that they might come to know the one true God, Jesus, from us. God, may we incarnate the gospel, its message and its power in our Samaria. Such that people would be attracted to, to us, but more so they would be attracted to you and your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.